0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com.
1: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. And today we want to spend our discussion mainly focusing on the induction agents that we would use to start our anesthesia. We're also going to talk about a lot of these agents can be used as continual IV agents during the case, and so we'll kind of just cover all of those at once. The main ones we want to go through are going to be propofol, etomidate, ketamine, benzodiazepines, Presidex, and then barbiturates. So there's not a lot of medications in this, which, which is nice because we can go a little bit more in depth with each one, but we basically just want to go through those different classes of medications and talk about the differences between them, when we would use one over the other, and what contraindications there would be to using them.
0: Yeah, so the first thing we want to talk about are the different types of receptors. And specifically with a lot of these, what we'll be talking about are the GABA receptors. GABA is the main inhibitory transmitter in the CNS. And when the GABA receptor is stimulated, it will allow chlorine. So chlorine is the big electrolyte that you need to remember here to move into the cell. And that will cause hyperpolarization. So similarly to some of the other pathways that we've talked to, what we're really trying to do is... Decrease the signal from being sent down the pathway. And so, if this postsynaptic side, this GABA receptor, causes the membrane to be hyperpolarized, then it's not going to want to continue this signal. So, that's really what agonizing the GABA receptor will do. And then the other one that we want to talk about is the NMDA receptor. And this is when we think of ketamine, this is going to be the receptor that is used here. And instead of being an agonist, like some of these other ones, ketamine will be an antagonist to the NMDA receptor. So usually glutamate will bind to NMDA and allow positive ions to flow through. and That's how you get your depolarization. Well, ketamine will block that. And that's how you, again, stop that signal from being sent down is by blocking that NMDA
1: receptor. So in terms of how these drugs move throughout the body, for the most part what happens is we give a bolus dose in through an IV and it gets a really high concentration in the blood. So the concentration of the medication becomes really high in the blood and it immediately goes to the vital organs that get the most blood flow. And one of those is going to be including your brain, obviously. And that's why you have that really quick and short time for the onset most of these drugs are going to be lipophilic and they're going to be able to go across into the brain and cause binding to these receptors, whether it be the NABDA receptor, the GABA receptor that Tanner talked about. So it's going to cause this sedation that we see almost immediately. And that's, again, just because it, it goes right across into the brain and causes that sedation. You'll see here that you're going to have these fast wake up times with these medications and it is not due to the fact that it wears off and is metabolized out of the body so quickly. That's what I want to make sure you guys don't think. So these medications are quick on, quick off, but it's not because of the fact that they're metabolized. The main reason that people wake up so quickly after these medications is due to redistribution. So redistribution is the idea that because these molecules are lipophilic, they're going to start going to the parts of the body that are not getting that high amount of blood flow like the brain or the lungs or your vital organs and it's going to start dissolving into the fat, dissolving into the muscles. When that happens, you're going to have a decrease in your blood concentration. So it's going to come back out of the brain and then go sit in these peripheral areas. So that is called the redistribution when it leaves those original distribution sites that are the main vital organs and goes to the periphery. So that's why we see the patients wake up so soon after these medications is not because of metabolism, but because of redistribution.
0: When we talk about propofol, this will be the first one we talk about. Many of us are, probably all of us, are very familiar with propofol. We use it all the time in the ICU. So the main thing that we're going to think about is all the things that are added to propofol. Usually if they have an allergy or complications with propofol, it's not necessarily to the propofol. It's all the things that are added in. And so this is a lipid emulsion that contains soybean oil, glycerol, and egg lecithin. And so with all of these things, you need to be very careful about bacterial growth. We know this from working in the ICU, you need to change your lines every 12 hours. In the OR, we also need to think about when we have these drawn up into syringes, you should discard those after six hours of being pulled up into a syringe. The other thing is a lot of times people will have allergies to these different additives to propofol. It's important to know that usually this is still okay to give, even if they have like an egg allergy or something like that, that propofol is usually still safe to give. So what we want to do with each of these is just talk about how this is going to affect your patient. And so first, let's talk about the respiratory depression. This is going to be a significant effect with Propofol. It also has a very narrow therapeutic index. If you recall, therapeutic index is the space between what we want the drug to do and where you start to have adverse effects. With these patients, you can very quickly get into respiratory depression. This is especially important when you think about doing your MAC procedures and things like that. As Cole mentioned earlier, the effects are mainly limited to redistribution, but it's still important to think about how these are metabolized. This is going to be metabolized primarily in the liver, and then you can also have some of the clearance in the lungs. It's going to, again, be a very quick drug. This is something that they can wake up from very quickly. Their contact-sensitive halftime is roughly 15 minutes for every two hours running it. If you have a eight hour case, it's gonna take about an hour for the patient to start to wake up. So keep that in mind. Although it's quick, it still will have a increase in contact sensitive half life. You should know that there are two basic types of propofol, so you have diprovan or the generic propofol. The generic form has a metabosulfite, which is a preservative, and so usually if you actually do see an allergy to propofol, it is due to this preservative. This allergy is more common in patients that have asthma, so if you do have an asthmatic patient, just keep that in the back of your mind that you may not want to give the generic form of propofol how it is going to affect your body. So it's going to, we mentioned already, it's going to decrease your respiratory system. You should know it also decreases your cerebral blood flow. It decreases your cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption. So your CMRO2, your ICP will go down, cerebral perfusion pressure. Let's think about this. If you have a patient that is already at risk for decreased cerebral perfusion, if they're in the beach chair position or you're doing some type of procedure where you're keeping their pressure on the low side, then this is something to, again, keep in mind. This might be part of the tools you're using to keep their blood pressure low, but also just keep in mind that when you're talking about cerebral perfusion, that propofol will decrease this. As far as anticonvulsants, this is important because in specific surgeries, you may want to induce seizures. This is not going to be your drug of choice. This is going to be an anticonvulsant and will actually raise your seizure threshold. It can have burst suppression. So again, if you're doing ECT, you can still use this, but just make sure that you know that if you're giving boluses, it may suppress your EEG. With some of these, including propofol you can see some myoclonic activity so some muscle twitching is normal You also want to think about what this does to your cardiovascular system. This is also going to be depressive where you're going to get hypotension. You're going to see cardiovascular depression with decreased sympathetic tone. You're going to have decreased preload and decreased venous tone. Like I said earlier, you may use this as one of your tools to do that permissive hypotension. But again, keep that in mind that it does also have decreased cerebral perfusion the last thing I want to talk about is it does have some anti effects, and this is debated somewhat how significant this is. It also has antipyretic effects, so if they have puritis from opioids, then Propofol would be a good choice. You can have pain when you give this medication, so some people will want to give this with lidocaine or opioids. I remember I had uh, my knee surgery done this last year, and... I remember when they gave me the propofol, I could feel it go into my arm, it was definitely painful, but again, I didn't even have two seconds to think about how it was painful and I was gone. And so, it's like a bad dream I had at one point, but as far as how significant that is for your patient, I don't know, because they're usually asleep right after this, you can give it with lidocaine or opioids if you want to decrease that pain.
1: What's a team of 20,000 strong capable of? When they're working together, anything. WellSpan Health, recognized as the top employer in Pennsylvania, invites you to join our award-winning team. The WellSpan Health Anesthesia Group gives CRNAs the opportunity to practice in a setting that fosters professional clinical growth while still maintaining a sense of close community and family. Does the idea of working with exceptional innovative teams inspire you? WellSpan has immediate opportunities in several locations for CRNAs and SRNAs, including hospitals and surgical centers. What's it like being a part of WellSpan's award-winning team? They strive to make every person feel welcome, respected, and valued in a safe and inclusive environment. Are you looking for excellent salaries, benefits, and relocation assistance? How about a signing bonus of up to $80,000? Well-balanced work and home life? You got it. At WellSpan, there's a community you'll love to call home. Nestled in small-town charm, WellSpan's eight hospitals and 220 care locations are near exciting cities like Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York City. WellSpan is reimagining healthcare. Inspiring health takes inspiring people like you. Learn more at joinwellspan.org. So just to think about when we're going through all these different things, most of these drugs we're going to talk about then are going to cause all of this cns depression so for the most part you're going to see that decrease in cerebral blood flow that decrease in the metabolic activity of oxygen in the brain decrease in pressure in the brain so just when in doubt any of these sedation meds i think it's pretty obvious to assume it's going to decrease that and for the most part as tanner said with the respiratory things it's going to decrease or depress your respiratory system and so the big thing we're talking about here is you're going to have a decreased response to your co2 so we talked about this a little bit when we talked about opioids, but basically, if I'm going to have a respiratory depression, which way do you think my CO2 curve is going to shift, to the left or to the right? So if you said to the right, then you're correct. Basically, shifting it to the right means that it's going to cause a higher level of CO2 before you have that response to breathe from that CO2 level. So it's just going to not make our body as sensitive to that elevated CO2 level. So when in doubt, all these medications just assume that it decreases your brain activity and then that it also decreases your respiratory drive. So the one other thing that we want to talk about here with propofol is that it can call propofol infusion syndrome. So from my experience in the ICU, we would maybe start patients that would get intubated on propofol infusion and then discontinue that and switch over to Pressidex or another form of sedation within a day or so afterwards. The big concern here is the risk for propofol infusion syndrome. So the risk is higher when you're running the dose at at least four milligrams per kilogram per hour, if you're running it for longer than four to eight hours, if you're giving it in children, if you're giving it with a steroid dose or catecholamine infusion, or if the patient has sepsis. It would make sense then, me working in the medical ICU, I took care of a lot of septic patients that were maybe getting catecholamine infusions, we were running norepi or epinephrine, to increase their blood pressure, and they were septic. So obviously this would be a really good situation for propofol infusion syndrome to happen, and that's why we would switch over to a different form of sedation. So what is it exactly? So they think what happens is that basically the propofol prevents long-chain fatty acids from getting moved into the cell and having oxidative phosphorylation occur. Well, if you remember what oxidative phosphorylation is, it's basically the process of when you go through your aerobic respiration in your cells, of breaking down the glucose and turning it into ATP through the electron transport chain, which is where you need oxygen to come into play at. Well, if you're not going to have that happen, then basically you're going to be more at risk of having metabolic acidosis because your body's going to switch into this anaerobic respiration phase. So that's one big sign here is metabolic acidosis will occur. You're also going to have hypotension, some bradycardia, which can result in heart failure, arrhythmias. You can have a backup and have some pulmonary edema occur. You can have hyperkalemia, rhabdomyolysis occur, some hyperthermia, and an ion gap occur as well. And then the big one that I think of with propofol that they would always have me in the ICU monitor is their triglyceride levels and, base, and their liver function tests. And so you can have some hepatomegaly occur and some elevated triglyceride levels occur. So just keep that in mind that that is what the propofol infusion syndrome is all about. And if you have a patient that is septic or is also going to be getting catecholamine or steroids, then you probably shouldn't give this medication for a long period of time or at a higher dose. So we shouldn't be getting to that four milligram per kilogram dose. We keep things around the induction dose is one to two milligrams per kilogram, and our maintenance is going to be somewhere in the 100 to 200 micrograms per kilogram per minute. The last thing with this drug, really quick, is it does have a pro-drug that we can give. I've never given it before, but it's phosphopropyl, which is basically then metabolized by alkaline phosphatase in the blood, and then it's turned into propofol. So this medication, really the only thing I could find about it was that it causes a lot of burning in their genital and anal regions. But other than that, it it basically doesn't have all the same effects that propofol would because it gets metabolized into propofol.
0: So basically, the summary of Propofol, the things that you want to know. I know that was kind of a longer section and we talked about a lot of different things, but the main things you want to know, the things that make Propofol stand out. One, you need to change your syringe after six hours because of the the risk for bacterial growth. Two, it has a narrow therapeutic index. Three, it's going to cause respiratory and cardiac depression. And lastly, keep in mind that it does have some anti-medic effects and will increase your seizure threshold. And so you may not want to use that when you're doing ECT. The following is an advertisement from the University of Kansas Health System. The University of Kansas Health System is committed to creating a culture in which the employees thrive. We are all living through challenging times and learning how to succeed in our new normal. Rapid growth has given us the opportunity to expand our team. Over the last five years, our CRNA group has grown from 35 to 100 plus and shows no sign of slowing down. We are looking for individuals who align with our style and culture. We are seeking self-starters, critical thinkers, and team players. Based in Kansas City, Kansas, with locations throughout the state, the health system has become a staple of the community a household name in the Kansas City metro area. We value many local partnerships including with the Kansas City Royals, the Kansas City Chiefs, T-Mobile Center and Kansas Speedway. Please contact D Pennington, D P E N N I N G T O N 2 at kuc.edu or J Kessen, J K E S S E N at KUMC.edu for more information.
1: All right. So the next one we want to talk about is Atomidate. So Atomidate is the main induction med that I always use in the ICU, but we don't use it as much in surgery. Uh, Basically, it's an alternate to propofol with little cardiovascular respiratory effects compared to propofol. So that's the nice thing is it doesn't have that as severe of cardiovascular depression or respiratory depression. It's also lipid soluble. And it does cause some pain on injection as well, like propofol. So again, you can give it with lidocaine, with some opioids, or if you give it in a bigger vein, like the AC, then it it doesn't cause as much of that pain as if you'd give it in a smaller hand vein. Another common characteristic that you can see with etomidate is myoclonia, which Tanner talked about with propofol. It's that muscle twitching that occurs. And the big thing here is that there are some major contraindications to giving etomidate. The first one, if you remember from our endocrine talk, is that it can cause a reduction in the amount of cortisol that can be formed. So, Atomidate is one of the medications that block or inhibit the 11-beta-hydroxylase, which is an enzyme that is involved in the cortisol production in the adrenal cortex. And so if you give this to a patient that has adrenal insufficiency, then it's obviously going to reduce the amount of cortisol that they need. So they're not going to be able to have that systemic response that they need for any intrinsic stress that they have. So a sepsis would be a perfect example of an intrinsic stress response. So if you have a septic patient come, and you need to do emergent surgery on them, this may not be the induction med that you want to use, which surprises me because I feel like we use it a lot on the septic patients in the ICU that I took care of.
0: So what is the disease with adrenal insufficiency review from last week?
1: I'm going to say Addison's disease.
0: (laughs) Awesome. I think we're one for three on our review questions. (laughs) So that's our first correct answer, yeah.
1: Uh, So the other thing that it's a contraindication... I'm going to butcher the name of this, I apologize, but you want to avoid it in patients with acute intermittent porphoria. And so porphorias are basically this condition which you can't convert precursors into heme. And so heme is basically a building block to form hemoglobin. You have this enzyme called ALA synthetase, which basically it, it, it makes these precursors To the heme, but then you're unable to actually convert those into heme. And so you have this buildup of all these precursors that occur. And because there's less heme, which is the final product in this cascade, it doesn't have a negative feedback loop to block ALA synthase from making more of these precursors. And so as these precursors develop, is when you start to see different symptoms that can occur. And so these different symptoms are usually presented as abdominal pain, some seizures some delirium, psychiatric things that occur. And basically, we want to prevent this increase in the ALA synthase, which is going to make more of these precursors. So two drugs that we're going to talk about today that actually do increase ALA synthase are going to be atomide, and then we'll get to it a little bit later, but barbiturates as well. And while we're at it, other drugs, our glucocorticoids also do this, and hydrologin also do this. But for today's purposes, atomide and barbiturates are going to be the two that we're going to talk about. So you don't want to give atomide in patients that have this genetic disorder or this acute intermittent porforia to decrease the amount of ALA that's actually going to be causing these precursors to develop. So that, those are the big two things to etomidate. Don't give it for adrenal insufficiency and don't give it to these porphyria patients as well. Moving on with it, again, just like propofol, the wake up is due to a rapid redistribution rather than the actual metabolism. The mechanism of action, again, is going to be on the GABA receptor. It's a GABA agonist. So just like propofol, it's going to increase this GABA receptor to hyperpolarize the postsynaptic cell and decrease the amount of signal that's able to go through. Dosing for this is usually 0.2 to 0.4 milligrams per kilo. And again, just like propofol, it's going to decrease all your brain activity. It's going to decrease your cerebral blood flow, the cmro 2 your cerebral pressure, your intracranial pressure, your even your intraocular pressure is going to be decreased. So all of them are going to drop. And basically the big thing here is even though the cerebral perfusion pressure is going to drop, it's not going to drop significantly enough to really cause a consideration, but you do have some of that vasoconstriction that occurs in the cerebral vessels and that's really the main cause of, of dropping that cerebral blood flow. So that that vasoconstriction keeps that pressure from not dropping too much. Uh, in terms of your cardiovascular system, you're not going to have as much of a decrease in your blood pressure as you would with propofol. So, remember, I said at the beginning here, you're not going to have as many cardiovascular or respiratory effects as propofol did. And so, you're not going to have your MAP tank out from under you. And this is due to just minimal changes in your heart rate, your stroke volume, and your cardiac output. You are going to have some decrease in your SVR, though, and that's what's going to cause that slight decrease in the MAP to occur. And then when I was talking about myoclonia with this medication, so if you basically basically picture this, myoclonia is this seizure-like look where these muscles are going to be tremoring. So it can obviously look like a seizure, but it's not actually a seizure. However, it has been noted that in patients with previous seizure disorders, if you give this medication, the myoclonia that develops can increase the risk of seizures occurring. And so that's why this is a really good drug to use when we're trying to map out the seizure foci and just to determine where the seizures are happening at. So in a way, it can induce seizures, but the myoclonia is not a seizure itself. So just know that discrepancy there. Uh, A big characteristic with this is it also causes nausea and vomiting more than any of these other drugs we're going to talk about. So if you have a patient that's really at risk for post-op nausea and vomiting, this would not be the drug to give because it increases the, the amount of nausea and vomiting higher than any other drug that we're going to talk about. And then lastly, as I said, with the respiratory depression, it doesn't decrease it as much, but it does still decrease it a little bit. Your minute volume is going to be decreased, but for the most part, the respiratory rate is going to remain intact. With with the drugs that we're going to talk about today that don't decrease your respiratory drive as much, just know that it can still cause some apnea right away after you give the bolus dose. But then after it redistributes in a few minutes, you're and it's just staying throughout the body, it's not going to cause that decreased respiratory response as much as propofol would. It's more just in that brief period right after induction that you might see that apneic period occur. But otherwise, there's not as much respiratory concern with it.
0: So in review for Atomidate, the main things you want to think about is that, first, it doesn't have major cardiac depressive effects. Two, it doesn't have major respiratory depressive effects. Three, it causes nausea and vomiting. And then four, just make sure you remember that it does have some contraindications for adrenal insufficiency. And then also for your patient with porphyria. Next on our list is ketamine. So ketamine is going to stand out from the other drugs that we'll talk about today for a number of reasons. First of all, because it is a stimulant of your SNS. And so this is going to act differently for a number of reasons, but also like we talked about earlier, this is going to be an NMDA antagonist. And so this is going to cause its depressive effects by blocking the NMDA receptor, not by the GABA agonism like some of these other drugs that we're talking about. This will make people just feel separated from the environment. This is what's called dissociative anesthesia, but they will still maintain their reflexes also with this, they will actually not have a decrease in their BIS level as well when you are giving ketamine. And so again, like I said, this is going to simulate the SNS. And so this is why you can have some of the different effects. It's metabolized by the P450 enzyme. And this is important to know because it has an active metabolite. So the active metabolite is norketamine. And that is going to be excreted through the renal system. So if you have a patient that has renal failure this is going to be a consideration. These patients will be awake after 15 minutes due to redistribution. So again, this is the main thing you wanna think about when you talk about why the drug is not having effects anymore. It's mainly due to redistribution. With ketamine, you are more at risk for delirium and hallucinations. And so if they are at risk, and if they're at risk, that means they're over 15 years old as a female, or if they have a previous psych disorder, then you're gonna wanna give a benzo with them as they emerge and this will help with the delirium also the hallucinations so when we talked about all these other meds so far we've talked about how they decrease your cmro2 your cbf your icp intraocular pressure eeg ketamine is going to be the opposite of this and so it's going to increase all of these things also like i mentioned briefly before ketamine will not decrease your biz even when they are totally unconscious. Again, this will increase your SNS. And so when you talk about the cardiac side of this, this will increase your cardiac output, heart rate, systemic vascular resistance, and your pulmonary vascular resistance so, if they have heart failure, you're going to want to be very careful with this medication because again, you don't want to have them with a bad pump pumping against increased pressure. And so, if they have right ventricular failure, you're going to be want to be very careful. Again, this will increase your PVR, and so, you, you could have a heart failure type picture. If the patient doesn't have catecholamines, so again, Cole mentioned this previously, but think sepsis here. If they don't have endogenous catecholamines, then you can see myocardial depression when you give this med so their body will not have the normal stimulation effect when they have the increase in the SNS. If they don't have those endogenous catecholamines, then you're not going to see this increase in cardiac output, heart rate, resistance, all those types of things. It doesn't shift significantly the CO2 response curve. So like we talked about with the other ones where you have a shift to the right, ketamine isn't going to significantly affect your CO2 response. It does increase both your oral and pulmonary secretions. So if this is becoming an issue, you can give Ropanol. The other major thing that we want to talk about here is it causes bronchodilation. So if you have a patient with asthma or a patient who's wheezing, this will be a great drug because they are able to maintain the respiratory drive and it also will cause the bronchodilation. You can still have a brief period of apnea right after induction, but their airway reflexes remain intact. The other major thing that you'll frequently be questioned about with this medication is it causes nystigmas. You'll see immediately kind of the twitching of their eyes. Again, if you're going to be doing an eye surgery, this might not be the best choice. And the last thing I want to talk about here is that it prevents windup. And I know we talked about this when we talked about the pain pathway discussion but just remember for windup, basically this is where you have pain that is causing more receptors to be used on the postsynaptic side. And so then a normal stimulus will be interpreted as an increased sense of pain. And so ketamine, since it's blocking those NMDA receptors, it's going to decrease the windup.
1: Awesome. So it's really important to note then with ketamine, is that this is the first drug we're talking about today that doesn't just do sedation. It also does analgesia. So remember, if you're giving etomidate or if you're giving Propofol, it's not doing anything for their pain. So you also need to be treating their pain. But this medication will do both sedation and analgesia. So that's a, a nice perk. And as well, it, it's nice because if you have a patient coming to the OR with really low blood pressure, or um, there's just a different kind of picture than we would normally see, this is a great drug to give to help support that cardiovascular system rather than giving it another induction medication that typically drops it. And one other thing I want to quick add is just a trivia point I thought was really interesting was most of the drugs we're talking about here today have like 80 to 90% protein binding. Ketamine only has 12%. So it's, it's very different in terms of protein binding compared to the other drugs. So if you would ever get a test question like that, just know that ketamine has only 12% protein binding compared to the other drugs are 80 to 90%. So also then with review is the nice thing with ketamine is this also helps with your respiratory system because it causes bronchodilation. The other ones whether well, they're not affected or cause some bronchoconstriction. So that's why this one's nice to give with an asthma patient. And then again, this has an active metabolite. So as Tanner mentioned, be careful with renal excretion then from this metabolite, if you have renal failure, not to give it. And I feel like there's obviously going to be exceptions to this, but I feel like in everything we've talked about in our talk so far, whenever something has an active metabolite, it's usually then excreted by the renal system. And so they're at risk for having toxicity if they have renal failure with a medication with active metabolites. I, I'm sure there's exceptions on that, but pretty much everything I can remember talking about so far, that's been the case. So do you remember from a couple sessions ago with neuromuscular blockers, which ones had the active metabolites?
0: For neuromuscular blockers, oh, it was a, man, while ago. Like a while ago. um
1: I don't even remember. I'm just asking. I know there was two of them. I wish I can tell you I knew, but I honestly can't remember. So go back and listen to that talk if you don't remember, because <laughs> yeah. we're obviously bad examples. All right, moving on to the next one. So we're going to talk about benzos, and so ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, we're going to be using Versed for our benzos and anesthesia. I used a lot of Ativan on the ICU, especially taking care of alcohol withdrawal patients. But for the most part, in terms of our anesthesia, we're going to be using Versed. And so I'm going to spend most of my time talking about Versed here. But again, it's a GABA agonist. Same thing as what we've been talking about. And induction dose is going to be around 0.1 to 0.4 milligrams per kilo. And again, it has a very, very quick onset, 30 to 60 seconds. It gets into the, the brain and that vessel-rich group really quickly. And then... The quick off again is from redistribution. The unique thing here is that it has this imidazole ring, which basically when we store it, we store it in an acid solution and this ring is open in an acidic solution and it makes the molecule water soluble. So then once we get it into the blood and it's in the physiological pH, that 7.4 range, that ring closes and it becomes lipid soluble. And so the, the nice thing about this then is because it's already water soluble when we're storing it, it doesn't need the addition of propylene glycol, which is usually what causes that pain or that venous irritant that you get when you're injecting these other meds. So that's the nice thing is we don't need that with this medication. And then once we get it into the system, it switches and turns into lipid soluble and then is able to cross into the brain. So that's a beautiful chemical structure of this medication that allows it to do that purpose. Speaking of active metabolites that we just talked about, so midazolam or Versed also has an active metabolite. And where do you think it's going to be excreted by? Kidneys. Kidneys. I'm glad you got that one right. So again, (laughs) it's going to be excreted by the the renal system. So just be mindful of that. This type of medication, the benzos are anticonvulsant medications. They also cause some antrograde amnesia, not retrograde. So keep that in mind, antrograde amnesia and some muscle relaxing effects as well. When we give this induction dose, it can initially decrease that cerebral blood flow and that metabolic rate of oxygen in the brain as well, but it doesn't cause any analgesia. And I think the big thing that we think about when we talk about benzos or Ativan is their ability to be an anti-anxiety medication. So that's that's a nice perk of this medication. That it's, it's a anti-anxiety med. And speaking of that, if you overdose on this, then what's the drug that you're going to give to replace it. So a lot of times people would come in to the ICU I took care of, took too much Ativan, and we ended up having to reverse them. So we'd give, give flumazenil, which is an antagonist of the GABA receptor. So this is an interesting point that I actually just learned about today, was basically if you give flumazenil and it reverses the effects of Ativan, shouldn't flumazenil cause you to be more anxious? Because if you give Ativan to decrease your anxiety, and then I antagonize that, wouldn't I be more anxious with vomazenil? And the answer is no, because an antagonist doesn't do the opposite effect of an agonist. If you remember from Pharmacology 101, an antagonist basically just blocks the receptor. If you bound an inverse agonist to the receptor, then it would cause the opposite effect, which would be anxiety. So I thought that was interesting. Flamazanil is just an antagonist, so it just blocks it. It doesn't do the opposite effect. It's a shorter half-life than a lot of the benzos. Just know that you might have to give subsequent doses of this medication. This kind of the similar effect we talked about with opioids with Narcan, how that had a a shorter half-life than a lot of the opioids, and so you may have to redose that medication as well. So with flamazanil, you're going to start with 0.2 milligrams and just keep giving 0.2 milligram doses up to 1 milligram. Just know that if you give too much, it can cause some seizures, especially in patients that... Our chronic benzo use patients. The other thing I just want to specifically talk about with Verset, it's also a nice drug because it doesn't have a, those cardiovascular or a lot of respiratory side effects that you would see with the other medications. So this is, a, this is a pretty straightforward drug from that standpoint. But again, during that initial induction dose, you can have a little bit of respiratory depression, but not for the duration of the drug. And then just know that the half-life of Verse said it's about six hours, and even Ativan gets up to I think it was like forty three hours or something that I saw because that has some enterohepatic recirculation. But basically, just know that these medications last a lot longer, and so it's okay if you're doing it for a young person and they're going to have a short surgery and go home and they can bounce back from it. But if you give it to an elderly patient for their one hour surgery, outpatient wise, and expect them to go home the rest of the day, they might be sleepy, sleepy the rest of the day. Not might not be able to get out of recovery and go home very quickly after their procedure. So just keep that in mind um, if you're going to be giving a benzo uh, during your procedure. So next, let's talk
0: about dexmedetomidine or Presidex. So this is a selective alpha-2 agonist. And if we remember from our ANS discussion, Presidex and clonidine are the two medications or the major medications that we talk about when we talk about this pathway. And so this will block the presynaptic release of catecholamines by decreasing your cyclic AMP. And how this causes sedation is it it will inhibit the locus corulus in the pons. And that's how you get your sedative effects. Your dosage on this is usually just one mic per kilogram for your loading dose. And then you can do a maintenance of 0.4 to 0.7. I think usually up to 1.2 is kind of like your ceiling on that. The P450 enzyme is how this is going to be metabolized. And then you can see bradycardia and hypotension With this medication. I think we've all been familiar with seeing that in the ICU. Specifically, I felt like they had more bradycardia than hypotension. But it's important to know that when you give this rapidly, so when you give a bolus of this, you may actually see hypertension initially. And this is because you will have peripheral stimulation of the alpha-2, which will cause vasoconstriction. If you remember from ANS discussion, But then immediately after that, you will have central stimulation take over. And that's where you start to get your hypotension. You won't see respiratory depression with this medication, which is nice. And then then when you talk about your perfusion pressures and things like that, it will decrease your cerebral blood flow due to the vasoconstriction. But you won't see a change in your ICP or your CMRO2. The sedation for this is nice because like we've probably all experienced, it's not such a sedative like some of these other ones we've talked about. It resembles more your natural sleep. And so they can emerge really nicely from this and it can decrease their emergence delirium. So similar to ketamine, it also has some analgesia effects. And then also a nice thing about this is it has some anti-shivering. So if you have a patient that this would be a consideration for, then Presidex might be a good option. It doesn't impair your evoked potential. So again, if you're doing EECT, Presidex would be just fine to use for your patient.
1: So in review, does the GABA receptor cause analgesia?
0: No, not GABA. You'll see it with your NMDA and then also with your alpha-2 agonist. Perfect.
1: So that leads me into the last one we want to talk about today, which are barbiturates, specifically theopentol, which is a water-soluble molecule that is going to act on the GABA receptor and be an agonist as well. So, knowing what we just said, it's not going to be analgesic medication, it's just going to be sedation. And it also causes some sedation by depressing the reticular activating system, or the RAS in the brainstem. Dosing is usually 2.5 to 5 milligrams per kilo. Onset for this medication is 30 to 60 seconds, with a duration of 5 to 10 minutes. It's metabolized by the P450 enzymes, and again, redistribution here is the cause of wake-up, not metabolism. So in terms of active metabolites, after a normal dose of theopentol, you won't have any, but after a high dose, you can have some pentobarbital, which is an active metabolite. So in terms of cardiovascular effects here, it causes hypotension, um, mainly due to some venous dilation and decreased preload that occurs. The interesting thing here compared to the other drugs is it does have a histamine release. So you are going to cause some bronchoconstriction. So don't be doing this in asthma patients. You're going to have some respiratory depression that occurs. So again, whenever we talk about respiratory depression, I think it shifts the CO2 curve to the right. So you're not as responsive to CO2. CNS effects, again, you're going to have, because it's a GABA receptor agonist, all those decreases in your oxygen consumption in your brain, cerebral blood flow, intracranial pressure, your EEG activity, pretty much all of that's going to decrease. And again, if you remember from our atomidates discussion, you don't want to give this uh, barbiturate if you have a patient with a perforia, because remember Atomidate and barbiturates are what increase the ALA synthase from forming those precursors. So just keep that in mind. And then one of the medications specifically, I just want to add one last talk on um, under barbiturates is methohexatol. And that's basically used as the gold standard for your ECT procedures, because it decreases your seizure threshold and it makes it a lot easier to stimulate a seizure. So that's why it's it's basically the gold standard for the ECT procedure. And dose for that drug is about 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilogram.
0: Great. So we've gone through each of the medications and talked about the specific characteristics. For my mind, it's Also helpful to go back through and think about specific characteristics and then pair these drugs together. So we'll do that briefly here at the end just to kind of bring this full circle. So the first thing we're going to talk about is what type of receptors these use. So keep that in mind. For GABA, we're going to think about propofol, barbiturates, etomidate, and benzos. So most of these are going to be your GABA receptors. The two that are different is Presidex, that's going to be your alpha-2, and then ketamine is going to be your NMDA receptor.
1: So the next thing is nausea and vomiting. So pretty much none of these cause nausea and vomiting except for atomide is a big, big, big one, and ketamine can also cause some nausea and vomiting, but the big one here is atomide. And then if anybody asks you, propofol might have some anti-emetic effects, Let's think about metabolites
0: now. So, what are the ones that have active metabolites? That is going to be your ketamine, that's going to be norketamine, and then your benzos, your Versed, and your Ativan will also have active metabolites. So, that's important to remember because, again, those are excreted through the kidney. When we talk about the effects of these drugs being terminated, mainly we're thinking about redistribution, but you can think about hepatic metabolism in Presidex, propofol. And then again, just keep that in mind with the active metabolites for ketamine and benzos that you're going to be metabolized into active metabolites. And then that can have issues for your renal system.
1: And so moving on to cardiovascular, basically we base everything off of propofol. So propofol is the big one that decreases your cardiovascular system by decreasing SVR and preload. But comparatively to that, you're going to have atomidine that doesn't decrease it as much, but does decrease it. And then your your benzos will decrease your SVR, but it won't have as much of an effect depressant-wise as propofol. Your X, as Tanner mentioned, the big thing we typically always saw in the ICU was a bradycardia effect. But you're also going to have some decrease in SVR as well. And again, barbiturates are going to decrease it. So the one medication that stands out here is going to be your ketamine, which increases your blood pressure, your heart rate, your cardiac output. It's the stimulating agent for that SNS system.
0: So let's talk about CNS. What is this going to look like? Keep in mind, everything decreases except ketamine. That's going to be the general rule that you'll follow. So the different aspects of this is propofol and benzos can increase your seizure threshold. So propofol can actually be used for an anticonvulsant. Atomidate can decrease your seizure threshold. So that can actually allow seizures to occur and again just keep in mind that ketamine is the odd man out here this is going to increase all of your cns effects
1: yeah so i feel like when in doubt ketamine is the oddball Mm -hmm. that you want to go against uh in terms of context sensitive half-life so just to recall here context sensitive is the longer you give the medication how does that affect how fast it'll come off so remember as tanner talked about if you have a propofol It's kind of like the propofol, again, is the main drug that we compare the other ones to. So that, if you have an eight-hour procedure, is going to be from like 45 minutes-ish, maybe up to an hour to wake up. Barbiturates are going to be a little bit longer than propofol. Presidex is, again, longer than propofol as well. Just know that actually propofol here is faster than both of those. Same thing with ketamine. It's longer than propofol. And the big, big, long one here is going to be your benzos. That's when we talked about that. It, it can take hours to wake up completely from this with the, with the half-life, getting that drug out of your system. So, so just know that the benzos can still have that depressant effect for a lot longer after the procedure.
0: When you think about allergies, really the only one you're concerned about is propofol. And again, this is not because of the egg and soy allergies. This is because of sulfite, that preservative that you will see with generic propofol.
1: Another characteristic is myoclonus, so that spasticity or the contraction of, of the muscles. So remember the big one here was atomidate. That's the one that looks like a seizure, but it's not actually a seizure. But then as well, atomidate can cause you to have a seizure because of that reason, if they're a patient that already has seizures. And then also myoclonus is small in some barbiturates and, and propofol might have a little bit of myoclonus as well.
0: Last thing we want going to talk about, and we'll wrap this up, is the effect on ventilation. Basically, all of them will cause apnea if given in large enough doses, propofol for sure, your barbiturates for sure, ketamine, this is going to be one that you'll have to do a large dose to get that apnea. But the main thing that's different here, remember ketamine causes bronchodilation. So this is going to be really effective for your asthmatic patients. Your tomate's going to be less than the LRs as far as causing apnea. But again, with giving larger doses and all of these, you're going to see an apneic patient.
1: Hopefully that's a good summary on the common induction agents and IV agents that we would use for anesthesia. Just try to keep in mind those different characteristics you talk about there at the end and and what separates one from the other one.